From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, oats analysis. Whom should we treat? Whom should we observe? Delay of treatment of all people with elevated intraocular pressure is not a cost-effective strategy. It's not a good use of social resources. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Kimes declares consulting for Allergan and Pfizer and contracted research for Pfizer. Did you know that you can get every episode of As Seen From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I've put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. The Ocular Hypertension Treatment Study is, without doubt, one of the most influential recent studies in all of ophthalmology. Ocular hypertensives are no longer seen as a single heterogeneous group, but as multiple subpopulations, some of whom are at great risk for conversion to glaucoma. But for all the analysis Oates has given us, clear treatment guidelines have been lacking. Indeed, it's difficult to imagine an approach to the OATS data which would yield a clear decision tree about which ocular hypertensives warrant prophylactic therapy and which require only observation. One approach might be a cost-effectiveness analysis, and this is the avenue my guest today, Stephen Kimes, has taken. Steve, in the unlikely event that one of our listeners does not know what the OATS study is, can I have you just give a brief summary? Okay, the um, O study was a, uh, or is a randomized clinical trial that enrolled over 1,600 people who had documented ocular hypertension, which was defined in notes as having an IOP greater than 24 millimeters of mercury in one eye and less than 32 millimeters of mercury in that eye, and then uh, 21 to 32 millimeters of mercury in the fellow eye, and that everybody's required to have normal visual field and optic discs. They um, they then followed the patients. Half of them were randomized to management using uh, medication, and were the treatment goal was that you would achieve a 20% reduction in the intraocular pressure measurement. Then they followed them for five years, and found that uh, there was a um, 60% reduction in the incidence of primary open ankle glaucoma in the treatment group as opposed to the ocular hypertensives who are not treated? That's correct. How much more common is glaucoma in African-American patients? Glaucoma is, is three to five times more common, more prevalent among African-Americans than among Caucasians. Despite that, Oates did not find race to be an independent variable for the development of glaucoma once you controlled for other factors. That is correct. It, what we found is that after you controlled for vertical cut disc ratio and corneal thickness, that race was no longer found to be a significant 
predictor of the incidence of glaucoma. How common is ocular hypertension? Um, the, the, there's wide variation in the estimates, but I believe that uh, we can be confident there's about 10 million people in the United States who have elevated intraocular pressure, at least defined as greater than 21 millimeters of mercury in at least one eye. Now, if treatment reduces the ocular hypertension five-year risk of conversion to glaucoma by about 50%, or, or as you said, a little bit more. 60. What is the consensus on who should be treated? <laughs> there is no, There was no consensus, really, among those. Uh, there was a paper that came out written by my good friend Alan Robin. It was an editorial that was in archives that was responded to the, uh, the original Oates manuscript in which he argued that it was not good use of, of resources to treat people who had, who had elevated intraocular pressure until they converted to glaucoma because there was minimal impact on quality of life and, and he didn't feel that it was an effective use of resources. And on what basis did he make that claim? That, that's, that's strictly based on clinical judgment. How do we go about establishing a guideline? Well, if, if you're referring to guidelines, uh, uh, the way they are current, way particularly in ophthalmology that they are currently established is is by expert opinion and, and some review of the literature. Now, there are other fields of medicine that uh, have moved more quickly towards trying to take a more rigorous method of doing this by conducting meta-analyses and and constructing decision models and things of that sort that uh, allow you to have a more evidence-based approach to development of guidelines. Steve, can I have you describe the design of this study? Okay, what, uh, what we have done here is a decision, is referred to as a decision analysis. And what we're essentially trying to do is to, using a mathematical approach, a fairly, sim a fairly simple mathematical approach, it's rather than you know, intense statistics, what we're doing is largely constructing a spreadsheet, if you will, that allows us to, in a very clear analytical manner, compare the, the costs and the benefits of treatment of somebody who has uh, elevated intraocular pressure and incorporating the probabilities of conversion that come from both the OATS study and from other places in the literature. And what we're essentially trying to do is, in this very straightforward manner, is determine whether or not the cost of treatment is outweighed by the benefits of the treatment. When you talk about costs, do you mean literal costs as in dollars and cents? In this case, we are. Now, there's some that would, you, know, you, you can also consider costs in, in, other, in another fashion, you know, maybe looking at the uh, costs in terms of the number of cases of blindness that develop due to non-treatment or something like that. But in this case, we took what is referred to as a cost-utility approach in which costs were, co were quantified strictly in dollars and cents. Uh, in, the, in, in our model, the costs that we were looking at were largely the cost of treatment as well as the, um, the medical costs of, of somebody going blind or developing uh, glaucoma. The cost of treatment we did by simply taking uh, what the... Uh, uh, the medication cost was in the uh, in the OATS study, and calculating what that was for for each person on average. The costs of developing glaucoma were taken by a study that was done by Paul Lee and some colleagues that was published in archives a couple years ago. Costs of blindness were very difficult to come up with because there's not been any re real good rigorous studies of that type of. Uh, of resource consumption, but there were some studies done in Europe that we were able to at least come up with a uh, rough estimate 
of what the costs are blind are associated with somebody going blind due to glaucoma. So, what does glaucoma cost? Um, well, the the cost of uh, of a year of glaucoma, at least according to Paul Lee and his colleagues, ranges from anywhere from thirteen hundred dollars a year up to uh, twenty two hundred if somebody's developed uh, unilateral blindness. And what that represents is the incremental use of medication and monitoring of, of the patient, as well as in the case of blindness, the uh, rehabilitation that the patient may need to go under. What is a Markov decision model? A Markov model is, is a specific type of uh, decision analysis method in which we take a, a person from the time at which they're diagnosed with a disease, and then we're examining on an annual basis, in the case of my model, it was an annual. You could look at it for a month or a year or 10 years. We looked on a one-year basis, and that's the way most folks do it because that's the way we typically think of a chronic disease. And we model what happens for them during the course of that year, and then at the end of the year, they go back to the beginning of where they were at that year, or they might go on to another state of health and then we model it again. So for example, I have people who start out with ocular hypertension. During a year, they can either remain as people with ocular hypertension or they can convert to glaucoma. If they convert to glaucoma the following year, they begin in, uh, in the glaucoma bucket and then they progress through that and they may go on to, to the next stage of glaucoma. They can also die during the course of the year, not due to their visual disease, but due to other causes. And then we continue that. And in our particular model, people went, you know, could go from uh, ocular hypertension through five stages of glaucoma and ultimately to unilateral blindness and bilateral blindness. Quality of life was measured on the basis of utility. What does that mean? Okay, what utility refers to is a, um, it's a metric that is used in order to evaluate somebody's quality of life. And it's different from other quality of life measures that are used because in that we look not only at does somebody lose function, but also how important that function is to the person. For example, there is a uh, very well-known quality of life instrument in, in vision and uh, the vision sciences that we, it's called the NEIVFQ, the National Eyes to Visual Function Questionnaire. And what that does is it allows you to determine if somebody has lost function in some specific areas of their life. For example, it asks questions on driving. And you can look at somebody's score on driving from year one to year two or uh, between different disease groups and, or things of that sort. That's the way the NIVFQ does it. But we don't know what that score means to the individual person. We don't know how important losing driving skills is to somebody. We know that typically we know it's fairly, fairly important, but we don't know how important it is. What we do with utilities is that uh, we ask somebody, how do you rate your quality of life? And we ask them uh, that by asking what they would give up in order to gain perfect health, or in the case of vision, perfect vision. And based upon what they're willing to give up, we can then determine what their quality of life is. And we can do that in a manner that is quantifiable. And therefore, what we're then able to determine is if we go ahead and correct the condition, that caused them to have this reduction in quality of life, we can say how much it costs per unit of utility. And the utility is measured on a scale of zero to one. We can, we can speak to how much, what it costs 
to gain that additional increment of utility and therefore make a policy decision. Now, these are metrics like someone would be willing to treat a kidney in order to get driving vision back? Well, no, we, we don't normally ask if they're willing to trade a kidney. What, what we do is, um, say, for example, if I were to conduct this with you, and, and there's nothing worse than trying to do uh, a vision science trade-off with an op- ophthalmologist, so, but we'll do it anyway here. What I would say to you is I'd say, okay, Josh, assume that, assume that you are blind, and I can do a, a surgery that will uh, restore you to perfect vision. Now, however, doing this does result in a risk of death. And if you die, it's going to be immediate. You're going to die as a, during the procedure as a result of the procedure. Now, if I can do this and there is a no risk of death at all, would you want to have the procedure done? And I was, you, of course, you'd say yes. Yeah, obviously. Then I'd say, okay, let's say there's, there's a 100% chance you're going to die during the procedure. Would you want the procedure done? No, obviously not. Most people would not. Now, then what I would say is that, okay, let's say there's a 50% chance of death. Would you want the procedure? I see what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. Okay, and then based upon your response to the 50, we bounce back and forth, and eventually through this ping-pong process, we find a point at which you will say, I really can't decide from that point. At that indifference point, that is what defines what the loss of quality of life is as a result of that condition. I see. I understand. Now, as I said, doing it with ophthalmologists is different than doing it with other people because ophthalmologists tend to think that being blind ain't that bad a deal because they've seen so many people who are able to survive, I mean, who are able to, to cope with the problems of life related to that. But those are one of some of the things that challenges that we face when we do this work in ophthalmology. What metrics did you look at for this study? What parameters did you study? In, in, this, in this particular study, we did not actually do the, um, the utility analysis ourselves. We used data that was collected by some other people. Henry Jampel had done some studies on uh, patients with glaucoma, Henry Jampel at Johns Hopkins. There were some people here at Washington University who had done a study of people with vision-related diseases, including glaucoma, that I was able to incorporate into this, into this model. Uh, that had not been published. We're hoping to take care of that in the next few months is go ahead and publish some of that data. But that was not collected for this specific study. This was collected for a previous study. And then uh, Melissa Brown did some studies on people with, uh, and Melissa's in Philadelphia, did some studies on people with legal blindness, you know, visual impairment of 2,200 or worse, where she did some utility assessment with them. And we incorporated that into our model uh, in order to make this decision, evaluate this decision. Can I have you tell me what your findings were, Steve? Um, Sure. What we found is that the cost, uh, well, what we did is we, um, we stratified by risk. We looked at uh, what happens if we treat everybody with a 5% risk of uh, a developing glaucoma. All people with ocular hypertension have a 5% annual risk of developing glaucoma, which is about 10% of the people who have interocular pressure greater than 24 millimeters of mercury. We found that uh, the cost per quality, quality is a quality-adjusted life here. That's their their expected lifespan weighted by the, the uh, quality of life that they're going to enjoy during that period of time. Treating those people came to $3,670 per quality-adjusted life year. And then we also looked at treating people at a 2% annual risk of developing glaucoma, 2% or greater annual risk of developing glaucoma. That's about a third of the people who have elevated intraocular pressure 
uh, greater than 24 millimeters of mercury. And treating them cost $42,430 uh, $42, per quality adjusted life year gained. And what do those numbers mean, the $42,000? What is a typical acceptable number uh, for gain for someone from a Western country? Okay, in, in Western countries um, that, well, in the United States, there's absolutely no consensus at all because there's no payer that will typically use this information to make their coverage decisions. Some of them will use it to advise it. Medicare has been talking about using it. But for most of us who do this type of work in the United States, we typically view a, a threshold of somewhere between fifty dollars and $100,000 for quality adjusted life here is representing a cost-effective treatment. If you go over to Europe and Canada, where they uh, use cost-utility analysis on a fairly regular basis, there they're more rigorous. And for example, in Britain, they use a threshold of 30,000 pounds, you know, roughly you know, someplace between 55 dollars and $60,000 to be on the exchange rate. They use that threshold as representing something that is clearly cost-effective, and then if they get much over 40,000 to 50,000 pounds, then they say that it requires additional justification, for example, uh, that it be some, something that benefits children, something along those lines. But based on those standards, you know, regardless of the standard that I cite, it's clear that treating people who have a 2% annual risk is a cost-effective intervention. Just to be clear, your data support the treating of someone with an annual risk of 5%, or to sort of put it into Oates language, with a five-year risk of conversion to glaucoma of 25%. Well, well, well stated. Yeah, Oates, Oates typically talks in terms of a five-year risk. That'd be a 20, 25% risk, actually, but you know, with some compounding, it works out to be a little bit more than that. But yeah, 25% uh, uh, risk. And then a um, for the people who then also, uh, that, that has a, cost per quality of $3,670. Uh, at the five-year, people who have a five-year risk of about 10%, then it's a, a cost per quality of $42,430. And your study suggests that that is justified too, using the metric of 50 or 65 or $100,000. Yeah, between 50 and $100,000 as a, as a threshold for cost effectiveness. Now, since the average risk for conversion to glaucoma from ocular hypertension from the OAT study was, I believe, just under 10%. Is that right? Yeah, can't can, can about 9%, yeah. Wouldn't this mean treating half of all patients with ocular hypertension? Uh, that, would be, that would be true if the uh, risk in OATS was, were normally distributed. In other words, you had a bell curve. But the risk in OATS uh, among the OATS part participants was, had a skewed distribution. Has a um, there's a lot of people who have less than uh, less than a two percent risk, and then you have a long tail that goes out to the higher levels of risk. So it works out to be about a third of the people. Now I am going to come back to the question of distribution of relative risks within the subpopulation studied by Oates later on. It, it, if I could correct you, by the way, that's 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 distribution of absolute risk. Excuse me, the absolute risk. My my error. I, I, I'll, I'll come back to that later, but I want to ask you something else first. Sure. Did you look at other risk groups, let's say people between the 2% and 5% annual risk of conversion to glaucoma? That's a, that's a fair question, and it's one of the criticisms, well, constructive criticisms that was made of our paper when we submitted it originally to, uh, to American Journal of Ophthalmology. And 
Yes, we looked at we looked at one percent risk. We looked at two percent risk. We looked at three percent risk. I don't think I ever looked at four, and then we looked at five. And what what needs to be recognized is is I mean those those numbers are somewhat arbitrary. You know, just the selection. I mean, could just as easily have picked two and a half percent. But what what the, we're trying to acknowledge is that for for the average clinician, their ability to precisely calculate risk is is somewhat of uh, somewhat questionable. So the you know the the ability to distinguish between one percent risk and two percent risk is is really somewhat artificial, even given some of the best risk calculators that are available. So uh, we chose these particular cutoffs. Well, first of all, we chose the two percent cutoff because after we looked at one, two, and three percent, it was the one that seemed to best maximize net benefit to society. And then after that, then and the one percent risk was. Uh, was not going to be as cost effective, so that one fell away. And then to go to three percent versus five was was an arbitrary cutoff, so we just looked at five percent. Although you make a good case for treating certain subpopulations, how does this translate to the management of individual patients? Well, you know, the, the one of the things about this paper is that it is, um, you know, what we're talking about is an overall societal policy decision. Treating individual patients is going to be a function of a number of factors other than this. But say, for example, a patient comes into your office and, you know, right now we're given, we've given the guidelines here that treating somebody with a 2% annual risk is going to be cost effective. And that's based upon a, an age distribution that, that I define in the paper that's, that reflects the average population of people with interocular pressure. And so if, if the average person comes into your office and the average person in, in our cohort happened to be about 55 years old, you know, then this would apply directly to them. You could go ahead and do that, you know, use a risk calculator such as the, that had been developed by previous people or that is getting ready to come out from the OATS group uh, later this fall. Then, you can go, then if you find that the person has a 2% annual risk, then you can be somewhat confident that the person might benefit from treatment and that it would be cost-effective to treat them. But then the next question that always needs to come out is, what does the person think about treatment? And the decision to treat is going to be a function from their point of view, from the patient's point of view, of how they, what, they, how, what they think about re, uh, being treated and receiving medical treatment, and also what their view is on risk of, of developing glaucoma and ultimately blindness or any sort of impairment due to their vision. One of the interesting things that we found is because the cost-effectiveness decision was very, very sensitive to the utility loss that the patient experienced. And you know, what, what our utility estimates were were based upon average of a group of people. But what, determine, what largely determines that utility loss is not the actual loss of function because very few people lose function. It's their fear of future loss of function. So if somebody is very risk averse, that is that they're really worried about ever going blind or ever losing any vision at all, it's going to be more cost effective to treat them than somebody who's not worried about those things at all because their utility loss is going to be very, very low. So you asked me about, you know, how does this enter into treating an individual patient? Well, it's going to be, in part, it's going to depend on the person's age. Uh, somebody who's older is going to have less benefit of the treatment because they're going to be treated for a shorter period of time. They have less risk of ever going blind, so they're going to have less benefit of treatment. Um, and also somebody who is 
you know, less worried about ever going blind due to glaucoma is also going to have less, less benefit of treatment. One of the factors that played a role in your decision calculations was the risk of bilateral blindness, which is very uncommon, but in the parlance of this study, very costly. If you had looked exclusively at functionally monocular patients, would your calculations have suggested treating all ocular hypertensives? Well, let me make sure I understand the question. Are you saying if I had said that um, uh, if I had applied the cost of blindness strictly to monocular patients, is that what you're saying? Yes, that's right. Within that subpopulation, would your calculations have suggested treating everyone? Um, I, I'd, what, one of the interesting things that I found in this, and it's one of the things that I have debated with several, you know, pe- you know, so, several folks at national meetings, it's, it's an interesting thing that while we typically think of all of the cost that is associated with glaucoma, well, the, the, we, we typically think that the benefit of glaucoma treatment is the cost of associated with ever going blind, cost associated with going blind. The truth is, is that the decision to treat people with ocular hyperte- who have ocular hypertension is not really sensitive to that. In fact, I can go ahead and uh, reduce the risk of ever going blind bilaterally or, or unilaterally to nearly zero, and it doesn't affect the cost-effectiveness decision because there are so few people who have ocular hypertension who ever develop even unilateral blindness. Now, now that's, you know, keep, keep in mind here, we're talking about treatment of people with ocular hypertension. If, if, on the other hand, say you were looking at a neuroprotective agent for somebody who had developed glaucoma, then it is likely that, that the cost-effectiveness decision there is going to be sensitive to the cost, utility loss, and the probability of ever going unilaterally or bilaterally blind. But that has very minimal influence on what happens to people who have ocular hypertension. Now, I'm going to come back to the question about the uh, ocular hypertensive subgroups. Although we assume that ocular hypertensives in the OAT study were representative of ocular hypertensives in, in, in the wild, so to speak. Out in the real world. Yeah, in, in, in the real world. To what extent do we believe that the ocular hypertensive population mix is representative of our own patient populations? What I mean is this. If the more severe ocular hypertensives were overrepresented in OATS, then is the risk of conversion to glaucoma for the ocular hypertensive population as a whole, might, might this be lower than the overall risk in OATS? And, and wouldn't that change the cost-effectiveness calculations? That's, that's a very fair question. Uh, basically, what you're asking is what, hap- uh, what happens if, the, um, if, if OATS does, in fact, represent a, a people who have greater uh, risk than, than the general population. And I address that in two ways. One is that, first of all, the, the OATS sample actually likely represents a less severe population than, than is typically seen in clinical practice among people we call ocular hypertensives. Assuming that we're talking about ocular hypertensives with greater than 24 millimeters of mercury. Now, I, I recognize that uh, if you look at the literature, for example, the work that Christina Lesky did you know, going back a couple of decades, when she did some epidemiological work on ocular hypertensives, she defined ocular hypertensives as being greater than 21 millimeters of mercury. 
So everything that I speak about is apply, it applies to people who have greater than 24 millimeters of mercury. But if I take that population, people who have 24 millimeters of mercury, then the oat sample were people who came in with completely immaculate fields and photos. Therefore, they are likely to have less risk of developing glaucoma than what you would typically see in the population. Now, that's one way I, I respond to this type of question. The other thing that, that I would say is that what you're really saying is what happens if we end up having to treat fewer people than what you're saying we have to treat or, we have to, or, or we're unnecessarily treating more. And the way I address that in my modeling exercise I did sensitivity analysis in which I varied the, the proportion of people that I had to, that I was actually treating. And I found that the cost effectiveness decision uh, remained the same even if I doubled the number, the proportion of people that I treated. In other words, if I went from treating 30% of the people to 60% of the people, the cost effectiveness decision remained the same. And if I cut it in half, in other words, if I went from 30 to 15%, the cost effectiveness decision remained the same. So that indicates that the decision is fairly robust to that assumption. In other words, the, the risk distribution in oats versus the general population. Now, since some of the costs that you factored in were actual expenses of medications, if medications were cheaper, would your model suggest treating a higher proportion of patients with ocular hypertension? Yes. And conversely, as newer and more effective but more expensive drugs are introduced, should we reduce the proportion of ocular hypertensives who we treat? Well, I, I don't know that I would say that I would reduce. What it would suggest is that you would reduce the proportion of people who you would treat with the new medication. Yeah, the, uh, the folks at, uh, at Pfizer and Allergan should not take um, you know, much comfort in my, in my results because uh, what we basically said is that we're, we're basing all this upon a cost of medication at about $450 per year. You know, roughly, you know, what's that work out to be about, uh, you know, $38 a month is what the cost of medication can be and it still be cost effective. We found that if the cost of treatment was greater than, was greater than $718 a year, that you would only treat 10% of the people if the average cost of treatment. Now, if you introduce a more expensive medication, you would still have the less expensive medications available. So then you, would go, you could go ahead and remain treating those people. But you're right. The new medication would only be cost-effective in treating people who have the highest risk. You know, say, in this example, 25% annual uh, five-year risk of developing glaucoma. That's interesting. That's that's really interesting. Well, that's why everybody says I'm a shill for the drug companies, and you know. <laughs> and it's and it's not the case, really. So, Steve, a, a, a bottom line question here: What do you suggest that we as clinicians do for our patients? Well, if if I can, you know, simply quote from from the conclusion of our of our article, it uh, you know, what what we say is that in general the um, uh, well, on average, the treatment of people who have IOP greater than 24 millimeters of mercury and have a 10% five-year risk of glaucoma is, is likely to be cost-effective. Therefore, and I think this is the most important take-home message, delay of treatment of people who have intra of all people who have elevated intraocular pressure is not a cost-effective strategy. It's not a good use of social resources. 
Therefore, we should be more open to treating people who have higher levels of risk of developing glaucoma. But ultimately, that decision is going to be highly dependent upon the patient's own preferences for using medication and also their concerns over eventually ever developing visual impairment. Steve Kimes, thank you very much for talking with me. Well, this was a pleasure, Joss. I really enjoyed it. Stephen Kimes is an assistant professor in the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences with a joint appointment as research instructor in the Division of Biostatistics at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. His paper, Management of Ocular Hypertension, a Cost-Effectiveness Approach from the Ocular Hypertension Treatment Study, appears in the June 2006 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Kimes or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275, or Skype J Young MD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.